I was speaking to a pastor from Minnesota not too long ago, and he was he was telling me about how, as a child, one of his chores or duties um, was he lived near his grandfather, and one of his one of the things he would do on a regular basis, if not a daily basis, was he would take his grandfather out for a walk. And he would tell his grandfather sort of what they were seeing. He would kind of describe the scenery to his grandfather. And this was something they would do regularly and something he enjoyed. And you might be wondering, well, why exactly would he have to describe the scenery to his grandfather? Or why would his grandfather need to be accompanied on a walk? And it was because his grandfather was blind. And so his role as a grandson was to go out on these walks with his grandfather. And because his grandfather couldn't see what was necessarily around them, but of course his grandfather enjoyed the idea of a walk, as many of us do, uh, the grandson, this pastor, would, would describe what they were seeing. And so they'd go on these walks and he would say, so-and-so is over there, or look over there, we see this sort of tree. And that was something that he did with his grandfather. And in many ways, when we come to Scripture... we're like that grandfather going on a walk. In many ways, there are, there are realities, things that the way, the way the world is, spiritual realities, things that scripture say, this is how it is, that we are either blind to, or we forget, or we just need to be reminded about. And scripture, and ideally preaching itself, is a way of us going on that walk and having things pointed out to us to say, this is really how it is. Don't forget, as you walk through life, look over there. This is truth. This is reality. And as we come to the Christmas season, it's an opportunity for us to be reminded specifically on that walk, as we come to the the stage of that walk, which is Advent or Christmas, to be reminded about crucial and important truths about the very Son of God. And this morning what we want to do is we want to say, what does the manger teach us? What does the manger proclaim to us? And we've been looking at different passages in the book of Hebrews, and this morning we're going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 1. And we begin in verses 1 through 4, which begins to tell us about the preeminence and the superiority of the Son. Let's read verses 1 through 4. It says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And again, he he wants to, first of all, in our passage, establish the preeminence and the superiority of God the Son. He begins, first of all, if you'll you'll notice in verse 1 and 2, talking about how the Son is the ultimate, supreme, final revelation of God. So we saw that 
he says, in many times and in many ways in the past, God revealed himself to his people. He spoke in different ways, specifically through the prophets, which refers to the writings of the Old Testament. But now, he says, a contrast, as oftentimes in Hebrews, there's, there's the initial thing and then Jesus is shown to be better here, but now Jesus is the better way that God has revealed himself, the way that God has made himself known. Whereas with the prophets as well, like God gave them a message from God and they relayed that message to the people. Notice in Christ, not only does Jesus speak the message of God, but he himself is the definitive message from God. His very person, what he comes to do, that itself is the revelation from God. It reveals to us who Jesus is, who God is. As John 1 says, calling Jesus the Word. The Word, God's Word, is made flesh. Also in verse 2, He is not only the agent of creation, the one who creates, but He's also the very goal of creation. He's the heir of all things. In verse 3, He possesses the nature of God. It says that He is the exact imprint of God's nature. That which God is, that, that nature that God possesses, the Son of God equally shares. What it means to be God, all the attributes, all the characteristics, the Son fully possesses as, as well. He is God, in other words. And not only that, but it says He's the radiance of the glory of God. And we know that God does not share His glory with another. God is a jealous God for His own glory. And so for the Son to actually share in the radiance of the glory of God, to, to radiate with God's glory, is for the Son to share in that which is, possesses, which is possessed by God alone, the very glory of God. He is God. And not only does He possess the nature of God, He is God, but He also does the things that only God does. He does the works of God. He, he is said to be the one who created everything. He's not on the side of that which is created. He's on the side of that which creates. He's the creator. And not only so, but he sustains his creation. As God alone is said to create by the word of his power and uphold by the word of his power, as God said, let it be light and there was light. He, create, he created by speaking that's all God had to do was speak to simply will things and they existed. And so the very Son upholds that creation by the word of His power. He is God alone. And finally, not only is He God and does He do the works of creation that God does, but He does the work of redemption that God has planned. After making a purification for sins, having died for sins, this Christ... He sat down at the very right hand of the majesty on high and he's become as superior to the angels as the name he inherited is more excellent than theirs. He's accomplished salvation and what the author of Hebrews says here is then going to set us up for the rest of the passage. He says that the Son is superior to angels. And we might wonder, like, what's that all about? Why does he need to address Jesus being greater than angels. And, and the passage doesn't tell us exactly, but obviously he's addressing this because it was a temptation for them. It was a temptation for them to maybe hold up angels higher than Christ, or maybe they were struggling with what to do with Jesus. You see, Jesus was a man. 
And angels are a, are a superior being to humans. And so if this Jesus guy, he's a man, and even in chapter 2 it says that he was made a little while lower than the angels, but what do we do with that? He's made a human being. Is he inferior to angels? Especially during their time period where a lot of folks, we know from like the book of Colossians, people were fascinated with angels more than maybe today. There was more of a reverence towards angels, more of a uh, self-consciousness of angelic beings. To even the extent that in Colossians, folks were falling into the idea of worshiping angels. And we even see that in scripture, where the angels have to say, don't worship me. I am a created being like you. It may have been that, that because Jesus had a physical body, as, as we know, there are, within that time period, there were some folks who thought the idea of being physical was itself something inferior. To be physical was obviously bad, and so, to them that is, and so maybe the idea is Jesus had a physical body, and what do we do with that? Doesn't that make him lesser in some sense? What does it mean for God to have a body? Or maybe the idea is potentially that, as we'll see, at the beginning of chapter 2, the angels were associated with the giving of the law. When the law was given, it was traditionally understood by the Jewish people that the angels mediated that law, that they were involved in giving that law. And of course, the Jewish people, as they should, they revered the law of God. They held up the law of God as something incredibly holy and something to be held in honor. And so if the angels gave the law, well, doesn't that sort of mean the angels must be you know, a pretty big deal, maybe even bigger bigger deal than the Son. But what the author of Hebrews says is that the Son of God is greater than those angels. Specifically because he has a better name. If you look at verse 4, four because he has a name that he's inherited that is better than theirs. And as we'll see in this passage, if you look at verse 5, that name is that he is called the Son of God. He's superior to angels because he has a name that they do not have. Now, angels, we know that they were called the sons of God, plural, but they're never called Son of God. And they're never called Son of God in the sense that Hebrews is going to say so. But Jesus has a greater name than them. Now, I want you to notice something. In the one sense, Jesus is always superior to angels. Because he's always been the divine son, the son of God in the sense of the fact that he was and is and always will be God. Even in verse 2, it says the son, it describes him as the son, the very son of God, God himself. And yet there's a sense in verse 4 in which God the son, who's always been superior to angels, has now become superior to angels in a new sense. In an additional sense. And that is by being called son, clearly here then, in another sense. So he's always been son, but as we'll see, he's now become son in another sense. And we'll see exactly what that is. And that is related to his work of becoming a human being to achieve our salvation and be enthroned at the very right hand of God. This is a way that Jesus has become superior to the angels since he has been a human being and he's accomplished our salvation. Let's look first of all then, we'll spend most of our time here in just verse 5 for sake of time. Look at the second half of verse 5. We get a string now of six times that the author of Hebrews quotes the Old Testament. He gives six quotations to make his point. Let's look at the second one first. 
chapter or verse 5, second half. He says this, or again, I will be to him a father, this is God speaking, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Now I want you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel 7. 2 Samuel 7. The author of Hebrews is quoting 2 Samuel 7, verse 14. Whenever the Old Testament quotes, or the New Testament quotes the Old Testament, it's a good idea to go back and look at exactly what it's doing. Now, in 2 Samuel 7, if you know this story, David wants to build God a house, meaning a temple. But God responds, no, David, I will build you a house, with a play on words there, meaning I will build you a dynasty. I will make you a line of kings. And God promises to David that there will be uh, sons, folks from his line, that will always reign on the throne from David's line. This is what we call the Davidic covenant. He makes a covenant with David with these promises. And one of the things you see in verse 14 is that when he promises this line of kings, he says this, which is what's quoted in Hebrews. God says, I will be to him, the heir that is, the ones that come from David's line. God says, I will be to those heirs a father, and he shall be to me a son. The ones from David's line are considered sons. Now, how do we understand this? How many of you, if I can do a show of hands, how many of you today do an occupation or have the vocation that your parents uh, or parents did? You do the same job that your parents did, okay? Some of us, not a lot of us. But back in the ancient world, when we think of sons, when we think of being sons and daughters, that for us conjures up typically the idea of biology. Someone is procreated from someone else. There's this uh, DNA relationship, all that. But the way they would have thought about sonship, obviously not excluding that, but the way they would have thought about sonship in the ancient world would have conveyed also this idea of function, of activity. And so, for example, if Jesus is a carpenter, well, what do we assume? That his father was a carpenter. Because before the proliferation of trade schools and colleges and stuff like that, where we in our sort of own individual freedom go and decide what we want our career to be, back in those days, if your dad was a carpenter, what are you going to be? You're going to learn your trade from your dad, and you're going to be a carpenter. And so Jesus can be called the son of a carpenter. And if you were to call someone a son of a carpenter, that was basically code in that day for saying he's a carpenter. Or in Matthew 5, Jesus says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Why is a peacemaker a son of God? Well, because God is the ultimate peacemaker. And to be a child of God, to be like God... Sons resemble their father like father like son is to be a peacemaker. Or to be a son of Abraham is to someone who has faith like Abraham. Or when Jesus calls uh, his opponents in John 8, when he says, you are, you are sons of your father, the devil, he's not saying that the devil literally had children and that's the offspring. He's saying you are like the devil. The devil has no truth in them. And just as you, you reject the truth. The father of lies. And so you are believing lies. And you do not believe me, he says. And so sons in the ancient world often had this this idea of function. And what would that mean for the kings then? You see, in Israel, and as well as in many surrounding nations, the kings were oftentimes viewed as sons of God. 
Why? Sons of that nation's God. Why? Because the kings, in many ways, functioned, functionally ruled on behalf of God. That they represented God's rule over the people. And that's what the Israelite kings were supposed to do. That God appointed them as kings and said, you are to make sure my people obey my law, God says. And so in that way, the kings were functionally sons of God. Not sons in the sense that they were actually God, like we oftentimes use the word, but sons of God in the sense sense that they represented and they were delegates of God's rule over God's people. And that's how 2 Samuel 7.14 seems to be using that idea of sonship. That the kings were sons of God. Now let's look at the promises that God gives David in the Davidic covenant. Look at verse 9 with me. God says this to David. He says, And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth, and I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, so they, they will they may dwell in their own place, and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that, that the Lord will make you a house. I will make you a dynasty, in other words. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, when you pass away, David, I will raise up from your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. That one will build a house for me, a temple for me. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son, this king. Skip down to verse 15. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I, will, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever. Before me, your throne shall be established forever. Now, in terms of fulfillment of this passage, who fulfills this passage? Well, initially, as you saw, it's Solomon. Who is the one that builds God a house, a temple? Solomon. And that verse that we skipped, I wasn't doing that to be convenient. Go back and read that. When he commits iniquity... I will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the sons of men. Well, obviously that can't be referring to Jesus because Jesus doesn't sin. Jesus does not need to be disciplined by God. And so in its original context, what this passage would have meant was that God was promising to David a lineage of kings who would rule the throne. And yet we also know, as the book of Hebrews is using this, And as a lot of the New Testament does, what we call typology, there's a certain pattern that's being established here. And as the promise is made, that pattern is starting to look forward. And Jesus will ultimately fulfill this office. He is that coming king who will ultimately reign, the one from David's line, who who will ultimately reign forever from the throne of David. Of course, that is Christ. And so this passage looks forward to Christ. And what the author of Hebrews does is he says, you want to know who the the true son is, the true reigning king is? It's this Christ. He is greater than angels. Of what angel was it ever said he would reign as the very king son of God? 
And this anticipates what we saw throughout the Bible so far in Genesis 3.15 when God promises to Eve that there would be a seed. Her seed would crush the head of the serpent. There is going to be one, this line that then gets traced throughout the Bible. And eventually we see God saying that that line is going to find its place in the tribe of Judah and in David's lineage, that kingship. Let's look now back at Hebrews at the first half of that verse. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 5, part 1, where here he quotes Psalm 2. He quotes Psalm 2. He says, for to which of the angels did God ever say this? Jesus is superior to the angels because to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And now I want us to turn to Psalm 2. Let's look at Psalm 2. This is a psalm that's quoted frequently, frequently in the New Testament. It's one that it would be great to become, get more familiar with. And we'll look at it today. We'll read the whole thing. In Psalm 2, it begins this way. It says, Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and, and the rulers, they take counsel together. They're conspiring together against Yahweh and against his anointed, the Messiah, in other words. Saying this, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords. The nations, people are in rebellion against God, against Yahweh, and against the king that he has anointed to reign. What does God do? He who sits in the heavens laughs. Are you kidding me? You're going to try to conspire against God? You're going to try to come together and, and, and break off the bonds of God? The Lord holds them in derision. This is a joke. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. Why? Because of this in verse 6. As for me, God says, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I have appointed my king. I will tell of the decree. This is a decree that I make. Yahweh said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. You see, sonship here, as we saw, referring to the king, just as we saw in 2 Samuel, where this idea of son is, is something that was referred, that you would use to refer to the king, the very son of God, the king, so here, we have a psalm that expresses that time in which the king would have been appointed as king. You see, if, if sonship is to be king, then notice here, to be begotten is to be coronated. To be begotten and made a son is to be, is to be appointed, to be enthroned. And God says, the nation's raging against me. It's a joke. Why? Because my king reigns. Notice in verse 8 and following. Ask of me, O reigning king, and I will make the nations your heritage. You're going to inherit the nations. The ends of the earth are going to be your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O, o kings... You folks that want to rebel against God's anointed son king, you better be wise. Consider yourself 
warned, O rulers of the earth. This son is appointed. Serve the Lord. Serve Yahweh with fear. And rejoice with trembling. Celebrate God with fear. Kiss that son. Kiss the reigning king. Pay homage to him. Kiss his ring. Kiss his foot. Bow to the king. Lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. But blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Blessed are all those who take refuge in the authoritative reigning sun king. And so what is the author of Hebrews arguing if you turn back to Hebrews 1? We might summarize it this way. Why is Jesus superior to angels? Jesus is superior to angels because he has a greater name than them, which is son of God. Namely, he is the king. He is the one who has been begotten and enthroned, not begotten in the sense that he was made God, but begotten in the sense that he was made king. The one who has always been God has now become human. Why? So that he might reign as king. He's become superior to them on an additional front, having become the royal son of God. And angels, you'll notice in this passage, as Max read it for us, the angels are said to be those who worship and serve the son. They are not superior to the son, but they are his servants. And this is absolutely remarkable when you think about it. As, as, I, as I began the sermon, talking about why maybe this was a temptation for folks to worship angels or to be fascinated with angels. For the author of Hebrews, like we might say, well, of course Jesus is greater than the angels. But from their context, where angels were seen as quite superior beings, things to be feared, when they show up, the angels have to say, fear not. For the author of Hebrews to say, Jesus is greater than angels is remarkable. The Jesus that we serve is greater than angelic beings. And this is maybe something that we just kind of gloss over. But even as we sang, O come all ye faithful, a lot of our hymns around this time of year will mention the fact that the angels worship Christ. In Luke 2, when the angels show up on the scene and they worship the child Christ, that's remarkable. The angels worship him. The one who angels worship. O come all ye faithful, says, sing choirs of angels. Sing in exaltation. Sing all ye citizens of heaven above. The angels worship him. And so as we reflect on this, as we are in the Advent season, and I want to encourage us with this theme of Christ's superiority as the very King Son of God, I want us to walk away with this truth. That Jesus became human the incarnation, becoming flesh. Jesus became human that he might become our Savior King. Jesus became human that he might become our Savior King. He became human to become one who from Adam's race would save humanity. The one from Genesis 3.15, the seed who will crush Satan's head. The one who, as Romans 5 says, Paul says in Romans 5, that we needed a new Adam. The first Adam led us into sin, death, and condemnation. And now we have a new Adam. Get that. Someone from Adam's race. A human to come and restore our humanity. To come and die for humanity. To save humanity. We have one who, from David's line, the long-awaited king, 
All these promises about the Messiah, about one who from David's line, O come, O come, Emmanuel, come thou, almighty king. And he has come. The one who in 2 Samuel 7 will come to establish God's forever kingdom and to restore God's righteous rule in this fallen world. And so I want to close with reasons that we have to celebrate this time of year. I'll give us some reasons why we have to celebrate this time of year. And I want us to think about it as what the manger proclaims to us. That as we go on the walk, and at times maybe we're blind to the way this world is, or we we forget these vital truths that the Bible declares to us, what can the manger tell us today? What should we be remembering during this Christmas season? And the first is this, that the King has come. The King has come, the one that we have waited for, the one that we have longed for. Our hearts are longing for this King. Come, thou long-expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. Reign in us forever. We are longing for this King. He comes to set his people free from sin. He's the one that this world situation calls out for. Even as we've been in, in Ecclesiastes and we think about just the atrocities in this world that Ecclesiastes reflects. In Ecclesiastes 4, that, there's, that there are suffering and there's, they're on the side, the, the power is on the side of the oppressor and there's no one to comfort the oppressed. That that's the world we, world we live in. A world where things are messed up, where evil goes unchecked. We want a ruler who can swiftly, effectively, and permanently usher in righteousness, as joy to the world says, that far as the curse is found, may a king come who can undo this mess. And Hebrews tells us that in the manger, we get declared to us, the king has come. The king has arrived. And he rules with a scepter of righteousness. Look at verse 8. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your throne. What's the scepter of your throne, Christ? It's a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness. You hated wickedness. That's the God that we serve. That's the Christ who's enthroned. We long for a king in the midst corrupt rulers in our world. In the midst ineffective rulers. God God lamented and chastised the rulers of Israel back in the day by saying, the shepherds that I've appointed, these rulers, they're bad shepherds. They don't rule my people well. And yet Jesus comes on the scene in John 10 and says, I am the good shepherd. I'm the good king. I love my people. I rule my people well. Not only so, but I lay my life down for the sheep. We experience the blessings in this kingdom. Second, our Savior, the manger declares to us that our Savior is the one with absolute authority. As Christ is the King who reigns, get this, we worship and serve the one who is seated in the very throne of God, who shares the very authority of God. That's the one that we worship. That's the one that we serve. That's the one that we follow. And so, believer, what... What sort of difficulty in life can you face that God is not in control of? Maybe you can think back to when you were a kid and you were playing in the elementary playground and 
I remember times where we'd play pickup football and, and you might say, you know what, me and so-and-so, as long as I got that kid on my team, like I don't care how we pick up the teams, I just want to be on that kid's team because I know if I'm on his team, he's like way bigger than the rest of us for whatever reason, he's athletic, and I know if he's on my team, we're going to win. And that's the God that we have. He's on our team. Who's on our side? The Lord is on our side. What's going to stop us? What can we face in this life? When we, when we have personal tragedy, when we get that diagnosis from the doctor, or when we face difficulty at work, is that, is that outside of God's control? Is that outside of the reigning Christ's control and care for us in this life? When we face personal struggle with sin, is that, is that somehow outside of his ability to care? Every foe that we face in this life is ultimately already a defeated foe on account of Christ's death for us. Any enemy we face, any power it has, it's simply on his, on his leash. Any opposition we face to spreading the gospel, when we're in the workplace and we try to share the gospel with someone and maybe it, we meet that, that meets us with a little bit of ridicule or, or opposition in some sense. We think of Christ's enthronement. He will make sure his gospel go, goes forward. As, as the believers in Acts held to, they prayed to the Lord and said, Give us boldness. You are enthroned. We know you're going to carry your gospel forward. As, as Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Matthew 28. Therefore, go and make disciples. Psalm 110 is quoted at the end of our passage in verse 13. To which of the angels has he said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. This Christ, God will make every enemy a footstool under his foot. Nothing will ultimately stop his authority from taking full effect in this world. He will reign until every enemy, every enemy is made subservient under him and is a footstool. We can have confidence as we go forward in sharing the gospel. Thirdly, it reminds us of our citizenship and our identity. That Jesus does not only save us, but as the king, he saves us into his kingdom. He makes us citizens in his kingdom. Maybe you remember the movie uh, Captain Hook that a lot of us my age grew up with. And in that movie Captain Hook, you get Peter Pan, who's an adult. Is it Robin Williams, I think, right? And, and if you remember, at the beginning of that movie, Robin Williams, Peter Pan, has totally forgotten who he was. He doesn't remember that he's Peter Pan. And so the, the boys in Neverland have to sort of like slowly show him who he was and kind of teach him the ropes again. And in many ways, we're like Robin Williams sometimes in our spiritual life. We forget who we are. Or to use a little bit more of a serious illustration, we, we at times can suffer from spiritual Alzheimer's. You think about a, a disease like Alzheimer's, that people forget their identity. People forget who their family are. They forget if someone with Alzheimer's was to get lost, they wouldn't they wouldn't know how to get back. To lose to to to, to lose sight of who you are, to forget your identity, like that that creates a, a huge ramifications of, of practical problems. And we as believers need to be reminded about who we are. We're too easily to forget in this world that's pumping messages that tell us other things about who we are. We need to be reminded as we go on this walk to say, that's who you are. That's what the manger says you are. We're dual citizens. Yes, we have, we have a citizenship that we have here on this earth. But now in Christ, we have an even greater citizenship in heaven. 
We're citizens of a forever kingdom, a kingdom that will last eternity as the kingdom of earth, as the United States and every other country will eventually fade away and be a blip on the, on the radar of history. The kingdom of heaven will last forever. It trivializes our earthly loyalties. It's a reminder of our identity and amidst many things that can entangle us. It's a reminder of where our priorities should be. Advent is a reminder of where our loyalty should be, what our purpose in this life should be. And fourthly, as we think about the reign of Christ, for many of us we say, yes, but, but things are not the way they should be. Yes, Jesus says he's the prince of peace and his righteousness is the scepter of his rule. I, I get it, but this world is still very messed up. And scripture understands that as well. That as we think of Advent, the word Advent historically means the coming, specifically the coming of God. And it points not simply to the first coming of God when he becomes a human being and is born in a manger, but it also directs us to the second coming when Christ will return and he will make his reign complete. You see, his reign is here, but it's also in very much, much of a sense not yet. Because most of this world is in rebellion to this king. It refuses to submit to this king, and thereby it refuses the benefits, the, oh, the gracious benefits that this world refuses to experience in his kingdom. But we, in Christmas... And with the manger, we fix our eyes on our hope. As Psalm 110 says, as he quotes here at the end of Hebrews, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Ultimately, Christ will come, come again. God will make all enemies. Anything that opposes the rule of Christ will be made subservient, will be judged. He will come again and things will be made right. And we long for the day when Revelation 11:15 comes true, where the kingdom of man and the city of man will be made and transformed into the city of God. And if you're here and today and you're not a believer, we would challenge you with this message as well. We would lovingly challenge you with this message. In chapter 2, verses 1 and following, the author of Hebrew concludes this way. He says, Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? He says, you know, the first revelation of God, when God gave revelation by means of the angels and the law, when people didn't listen to that, it didn't go so well for them. Israel was judged pretty severely for not obeying God's law. And how much more accountable are we going to be if we neglect the even greater revelation which we have now received in Christ? This message of how we can be saved. And see, it's very, it's very popular today for people to think of religions, of, of Jesus as sort of just one option to God. He's sort of one flavor of religion. And that's fine, but maybe I have my own way. And we all like to think of sort of there's a mountain and God is at the top. And all religions are sort of their own different pathways to God. And if you take this path, that's fine. As long as, you, as long as you're taking a path up and I'm taking my path up over here, we're all going to eventually meet at the top and be in the same place. That's kind of the typical way that people think about religions today. But the Bible says this. 
The story is not of humanity sort of searching our way up the mountain to God. In our sin, in our rebellion, we will make our own gods out of things. We're not going to search for God. We're going to make ourselves into God. We're not going to find our way up the, up, the, up the mountain. But what if? What if God, instead of us going up the mountain, he came down to us? And he came down the mountain and made a path towards us. Wouldn't that be great? And that's exactly what he's done in Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what we celebrate in Advent and in Christmas, is that God has made a way, the way, the only name under heaven by which we can be saved, to reject Christ. He is not some just some great teacher or some great guy. He is God's very Son. And to reject Him is to reject the one path that God has said, this is how you can have a relationship with me. This is how you can be saved. And so we would plead with you, if you're not a believer in Christ, put your faith in Christ. Turn from your sins and trust in him for salvation. And as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, as the music team comes forward, I want to encourage you, believer, with this. As Psalm 2 ends, we worship a Christ who reigns. He is authoritative. He has all the authority of God. He sits in the very throne of God. And as we, do, as, we, as we consider that, we can be reminded of this. The end of that psalm says, Kiss the Son. Submit to the Son. He is wrathful. He will destroy his enemies. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. But blessed are all those who take refuge in him. When I was in elementary school and I wanted that kid on my team, if that kid's on my team, I'm good. If that kid's not on my team, it's not good. Be warned. But guess what? Jesus is on our team. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. And that's what we celebrate in the Lord's Supper. That Jesus, he says on the night when he was betrayed, he took the, he took the bread and he took the wine and he said, this is my body which is for you. This is my blood. This is an emblem of my death for you. And so if you're a believer here today, we would invite you to come forward and celebrate with us. If you're not a believer, we would ask that you would refrain. We believe that this is the symbolism of this is, is particularly um, for believers. So we'd ask that you would observe with us. We're glad that you're here, but we'd ask that you would refrain. So let's go ahead and stand and come forward as we sing.